Spectrum is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Before a new idea can become a way of thinking, before one detail can flip the narrative, before anything that matters can change the world, it must, above all, be known. The duty of the Scripps College of Communication is to bring forth the people who bring forth the knowledge, by word or image or data stream and in every medium and by all means, they succeed. They say, make it loud, make it clear, make it known. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. On Spectrum, we cover a wide range of topics that are important to our lives. We feature journalists, authors, scholars, policymakers, activists, scientists, innovators, and some people who just have fascinating stories. Today, we're talking with author, scholar, and journalist Dr. Janice Collins and Judge Gail Williams Byers. Both are professionals and black women. We discuss the rise of racism, replacement theory, the growing fear in black Americans, and the role of media in promoting conspiracy narratives. Dr. Collins, I know as a scholar, an author, a journalist, you've spent a lot of time with the whole idea of white supremacy in this country. Uh, We now have heard again the talk of the great replacement theory. Could you talk about those two concepts and and how they've merged in our culture? Okay, so you're talking about white supremacy and then the replacement um, theory, theory or some right. call they, conspiracy. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's actually labeled quote the great replacement theory. Oh yes, uh huh, the great replacement theory. Yes. Um. Well, so let me let me say let me say this. Um. White supremacy. Um. What I've studied. Um. And what I found in my research is much like the the great replacement theory, it is a construct that has been designed. It's not necessarily based on facts. It's not necessarily based on data such as CDC, FBI, statistics, things along those lines. So when we think about white supremacy um, and we think about this replacement theory, what we're talking about is a form, a design, a construct to actually divide people. That's how I see that. When you think about white supremacy, that is something that has been used. And if others are interested, yeah, I talk about it in my book, 250 Years and Still a Slave, where it's really a psychological, it's it's when you combine psychology and anthropology. It really is, and I don't want to get too deep in the science, and then I want to bring it back a little bit. But basically, it is when you have a unifier. If there is, um, with living organisms, with living people, if you have something like being an American, if you have something that you can unify people in, then that actually brings movement. 
Okay. So white supremacy was it was designed, the the connotation, the labeling was designed to divide other groups from one. And so it doesn't necessarily mean that, that it actually exists. It doesn't necessarily mean that it actually exists. And by that, I mean that there is scientific evidence, biological evidence that anyone with white skin, forget race, because you can have white skin and be black, but let's just say for that color, anyone with a particular color, they have white privilege, they have white supremacy, and this is how we're going to divide and this is how we're going to stay together. And some of that, with the, if you look at psychological, the, um, the psychology of the anthropology of it, it is really a form of survival. On the, uh, the most primal level, it is a, a, a form of survival. Now, what that does, however, is that because of what's going on with the replacement theory and this terrible fear that I have to just say, like, white people can't handle diversity. I mean, it, 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 that, that's the premise of it, that they really cannot handle it and they really cannot take competition and they really fair competition and they really can't. So it's this fear that's concocted and said, you know what, we're going to show up all these image portrayals of all these people of color who are doing terrible things. We're going to racially profile them and say, all of the Mexicans are going to do this. And if you let them in the country, this is what's going to happen. You see what's happening with black people. If you let them continue and we can't, we haven't forbid if we have another president who's, who's black or considers himself black or half black. So what it is, is you feed into it. And people start believing it because most people are very insecure. The, That's the one thing we... Mm -hmm, go ahead. No, the concept of replacement theory, as bizarre as it is, it is, is mm -hmm. the construct that uh, non-whites uh, uh -huh. are coming in and will take over and become the majority and mm -hmm. place white people in the minority and white mm -hmm. people will be replaced. Isn't that mm -hmm. a, a fair uh, statement of what the theory is, is supposed to be? And here's the thing about theory without applied science or some type of evidence, it is just a theory. It's just a theory. So for instance, but it's propaganda. It's more propaganda, it propaganda. than a theory. It is, in a, it is in a way, because if you look at it from some lens, another lens, white people have been, been the minority for a very, very long time. If you look at the world, if you look at the global community, there's a different way of looking at it, right? right? If we look at the global community and we say, oh, if we add everyone up, then what we would see or construct as white is actually the minority anyways. That's number one. Number two, it is a way to enact fear, to say you can't trust black people or brown people. You can't, you can't, they're, they're violent, they're hypersexual. And so what that's saying is not only that, because we can't just look at the numbers and say, oh, they're going to take us over. Because what works and what's working with the strategy is what does that mean if they take us over? What does that mean if, if black people, brown people become the majority in this country? That if you look at certain surveys, ah, we can kind of look at that. If we look at genealogy, ah, we kind of that's kind of blurred a little bit. If we look at the fact that all people come from the African seed, we can look at that. But let's just say you can't just say the numbers, though. You can't say, oh, um, there are going to be if you want it to work. You can't say, oh, there are going to be more of them than us. What you have to say is 
And with that means that we're going to have more violence. We're going to have more. um, And um, they will have more power than us. And they will have more power. And so instead of looking at, you know, this initiative for diversity, equity, inclusion and belonging, actually what it's saying is that's okay for everyone else. There are 13 pieces to this pie. You all can have that one piece and all 13 of you all will need to divide it, but we're going to have the other 12. And that's the, that's, that's the mentality that is saying that you don't want that to happen. That's not what you, whether you, you vote Republican or Democrat, whatever, whatever the case is, you do not want that to happen. So what it means is that you have good, well, I'm not going to say good. You're going to have non-racist, discriminatory white people either being pressured into following the white race because we know how that goes, because if you do something outside of what is constructed as the white race, then you can be called a lot of names. You, you know, you're not an American. Um, you're, uh, you love black people too much or whatever the case may be. Okay. So we've had that for history for over 400 years. I mean, that that's nothing new, but what will happen with that is that is actually showing that while we have the most diversity, within a small mass of land, more than most nations, that when we're talking about diversity and inclusion in the American dream, that we're actually failing at that task. And what it's saying is that that this is a power structure. It has nothing to do with fairness. It has nothing to do with equity. It has nothing to do with justice. It has nothing to do with our constitution. It has nothing to do with our amendments or the Declaration of Independence. What this has to do with this is is power. And people are terrified because we have been doing so bad when it comes to diversity and inclusion, because we have been doing so bad. Some of us have been doing really great. We really try it and we try our best because we have been doing so badly with this, really making policy changes that are fair to everyone because we have not been doing this very well. And because there is fear and because there is insecurity and because there actually is hate in people's hearts, because there is actually anger in people's spirits and they want to blame someone. That's how this is working. And to give, give a bit of historical context, the, the replacement theory is not new. It was back in the 30s. It was exactly. used in Nazi Germany against the Jews who they exactly. claimed were taking over and replacing the Aryan race. It's now been morphed uh, into anybody who is non-white in the United mm-hmm. States taking over. It was a chant at Charlottesville. Uh, when the Nazis stormed the, and and held siege to the uh, Jewish synagogue on, on that Friday night. So this is not something that's new, but it's something that is taking emergence now uh, through disaffection and, and media spokespeople. Absolutely. And I'm glad you brought that up because this is not isolated to the United States of America. This is a global. This is a global movement. We see it everywhere. This is a global movement. And this is a movement that's some tied to spirituality in the Bible. This is a global movement that is tied to conspiracy theorists, to uh, politicians who want to win races and uh, elections and things along those lines. So it really is not, um, it is not, it, it, the, the corruption starts at the foundation. 
right? Because for instance, when we know about the Kerner Commission, right? When we know about the Hutchins Report, right? And we, and we find out back in the 60s where white people had fear of black people. And they actually did a study and said, your fear is unfounded. More than likely, you can walk through an all-black neighborhood and be safe. That has not changed. And people, white supremacists will say, black people kill each other all the day. That's right. They do it because that's a scientific study that if you take things away from, just like the rat and the mouse um, scientific um, study, if you take water, if you take food, eventually they're going to have to eat each other. If you take human beings on top of a mountain and they're deserted because their plane crashed, they're going to eat each other. It is survival. So, but the black people, the black race, they are not given that type of understanding, that type of depth. There is no education when it comes to this. And so what's happening is you have a set of people who said, you know, I'm willing to give everything that I have because I don't trust black people. We've been able to be in power for 400 years and we don't trust them. Now for 400 years, there's been a lot of things that have been done wrong. They have done very well. Most people would say, yeah, well, maybe somebody else can do it better. Why don't we elect a woman? Ah, I don't know. Maybe why don't we elect, why don't we just elect the best person, the best candidate? But what happens when you have this race coming into it, when you have the race aspect of it, which is a construct in and of itself, that is a political construct of race in and of itself. So by that meaning, it's not really authentic. So what we find, if we find, um, and you have these people, for instance, when you're going to, we're about to, we're going to talk about the Buffalo incident. There are so many people hurting in this country. And they're, most of them are hurting um, for because of finances. A lot of people, what we, one thing we have in common is that most people in the United States live paycheck to paycheck. As far as I'm concerned, that means you're enslaved to a system that you have to find other ways out. But doing it legally, doing it fairly, you know, in a healthy, loving way, there are ways to get out. But we have to understand that we have to address some systems here that were actually not set up for your survival. They well, were not set up. Let me, let me get into one of those systems because I... <clears throat> Excuse me. I want to ask Judge Gale uh, to help us out here. Judge, you're okay. you're in court uh, almost every day. Uh, this new Washington Post poll came out saying eight of ten Black Americans say there's been little to no improvement in how police treat Black people. Uh, the poll went on, and I I know you've read parts of it. Uh, showing black people are in fear. We haven't done a very good job, have we? Um, I, I think to say that we've not done a very good job um, as it relates to race relations, um, and particularly police community relations, is, is an understatement. Um, I know that there was um, a great amount of optimism um, particularly in um, and among the black community um, following the verdict in the George Floyd case. And um, I think that bears out. And we're coming in, up on the second anniversary the of his murder. Yeah. Yes. Um, and, and actually it's touched upon in that Washington Post Ipsos poll article where um, it talked about the optimism that was um, felt um, not long thereafter, almost a vindication of sorts that, the lived experiences of blacks um, each day um, had, had been, you know, finally vindicated with an appropriate response through the justice system. Because remember, 
you know, blacks are told, you know, you got to follow the rules, trust the system. The system will work. The reason why your, your outcomes are the way they are is because you all are often trying to live outside the rules. And, and we have to put these rules in place to sort of bring you all back into this civilized society um, because we can't have everyone running amok. And for so many years, and yes, even generations, they're, they're blacks who have no faith at all that the justice system will work or has worked or would ever work um, for us. And then even when it came to um, the the murder of George Floyd, um, the idea that it had to be on camera and it had to be nationally televised and had to be on almost a repeated loop and that we had to watch that and ingest that experience over and over and over again, the trauma of it over and over and over again. Um, It's kind of stunning um, to get from that to to an ultimate verdict, um, wherein, you know, at the same time, you had Black folks that felt like for far less and with far less evidence, so many have been um, charged, um, indicted, prosecuted, convicted. Um, even under this same system. And so that poll, I think, hit the nail on the head when it um, talks about what the status is of the perception of racism from the perspective of Blacks by and large, which is, you know what, same stuff, different day. And that there isn't a lot that's changed because the farther we get away from that verdict in the Floyd case, the easier it is to return to what was the status quo, very similar to what Dr. Collins said, and that things haven't changed a whole lot. But quite frankly, in some pockets of America, things never changed in the first place. Yeah, there were those who kind of put on a face and they you know, may have gone out and, and possibly maybe even you know, chanted Black Lives Matter while never really meaning the very words they said. Um, You know, I'll I'll bring the example even closer to home because in that same article, it talked about how Blacks feel that they're continuously targeted by police, that their experience with police and law enforcement will continue to be um, negative, will be escalating, um, and that um, the one difference, however, is that they, they kind of know what to expect from police. But given the state of affairs and the the state of racism and how it's been given this heightened platform. And so the quiet things that were once said around the water cooler are now free to be spoken brazenly and openly. That blacks are now, they're not so they're concerned, yes, about police and police interactions, but they're also concerned about you know, who's living next door to them, who their neighbor is, who's shopping next to them in the grocery store, who's pumping gas next to them at the, at the service station, who's, you know, who's pulling up next to them at the traffic light. Is someone going to be upset and just randomly pull out a weapon and, and assail them? And as I said, you know, I I can even bring the example closer to home when it, when we talk about this, um, this experience with the justice system, because in a community like mine, that, is now, um, although slightly, it is now majority minority. 
And it took some years for it to transition this way. And I don't think that transition was easy um, for this community. In fact, I know it's been difficult. It's been difficult the entire time I've been on the bench. So trust me, I know firsthand how difficult it's been. But, you know, week after week, I see by and large, far and away, more black and brown people charged with offenses, often you know, lower level, minor, nonviolent offenses, but they pack my courtroom every single week for arraignments. They pack it every day with, with hearings and to, and to no comparison to their non-minority counterparts. And for every single one of their experiences, there is a white male prosecutor. In fact, in this community that sits literally right a stone's throw away from a major U.S. city, Cleveland. Um, this city only exclusively, singularly, and has for the past decade that I've been on the bench, has only employed white males to prosecute, prosecute exponentially more than anyone else, prosecute blacks, and minorities, which is actually rather stunning, especially in a community this diverse. And it reminds me of the perception of the justice system and of courts. Um, I mean, even as far as the, you know, as the special prosecutors or even any substitute prosecutors, the law director is a white male. Again, every one of the, the other prosecutors, there are three additional assistant prosecutors, every single one of them have been white males and they far and away prosecute black people exponentially more than anyone else um, in this entire community. And in fact, in the entire county, the suburban communities in the county, I'm hard pressed to identify, I don't even know if I can count five black prosecutors in suburban communities in all of Cuyahoga County, which is the largest county in the state of Ohio. And that's pretty stunning, especially given the the large um, swing in diversity. But to blacks, it would not be stunning at all because they have such a low expectation for the justice system and they have a low expectation for police. And now they have an even lower expectation for objective courts. And that is when we really get into a dangerous area of decay and democracy. That's where it really becomes concerning. And um, that's where I think some really hard work is going to need to be done, literally to the point where judges may need to trade their judicial robes for hard hats because we have got to do some hard work in reinfusing faith in this, this system of justice because it is absolutely on the brink. Let me toss out a, a couple of uh, statements that uh, or facts that came out in this poll, and I'd like to get both of you to react, so just jump in as you see fit. One of the things that I think, uh, to me reading it, was astounding, and perhaps it wasn't astounding to you. It says three-quarters of Black Americans are worried that they or someone they love will be attacked because of their race. Does that surprise you? That number seems astoundingly high, but perhaps I'm seeing it through a white lens. Um, 
a time I'll go. I, I think absolutely not. That That's not a surprising number to me um, because I think that um, Blacks who, you know, again, may have felt some modicum of comfort in feeling like things were moving in a decent direction where, again, there was, you know, at, at least the facade of fairness and that we we wouldn't have to worry as much. I like to say, you know, we believe we had moved maybe past the verses and onto the chorus of we shall overcome. Have been starkly reminded that, you know what, for every step forward, there are 12 steps back. If you think about it, there was this huge backlash even to the phrase Black Lives Matter because that was met with Blue Lives Matter, White Lives Matter, All, all Lives, lives Matter. As if there has to be a zero sum game. And now moving from that to, you know, you know what, these incidences, they're unfortunate. I'm I'm amazed we didn't get more just thoughts and prayers, which is usually what <laughs> happens in, in these circumstances. Just everyone's thinking and praying. Yeah. And meanwhile, black people are genuinely terrified because again. The quiet parts aren't being said at the water cooler anymore. Uh, Dr. Collins, uh, I'd love to hear your comments on that, but I also want to add one more thing. In, in this poll, it said after the attack in, in Buffalo, only 10% of the black Americans polled think that the problem of racism will improve in their lifetime, while 53% a 53% majority think it will get worse. Mm -hmm. Um, That's really stunning to me uh, that we've, we've come to this point. Um, Does that surprise you? Your feelings about that, that statement? Well, I would, I say that it's sad, um, but it's reality. And if you look at like the other numbers that you brought up where black people were worried or somewhat worried, if you add them, that's 75%, right? Right. And so what is happening um, here, 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 here's the truth. Black people, I want to say, first of all, that black people may be afraid. They may be in fear. What white people, some white people are fearing themselves. And what I think about is if there is going to be a point of retaliation. That's what we have to worry about. Because, you know, there are, there are, there's fear because black people and white people and other people, you know, all white people are not made the same, just like black people. They are traumatized. They see what is actually happening. I remember when I talked to white people when the Emmett Till trial was going on, when they were alive and they were five years old and they, I interviewed them. They said, I just couldn't believe that anybody would just kill that black boy just because he was black. It is so hard for human beings to fathom that, but to live that, to see that. We have seen black children um, killed 
within a decision of 1.5 seconds because they thought that that 14, that 12 year old was an adult male. We have seen black children run away and be shot in the back. We've seen black people trying to make a living like every other American, which is what we all should be united on. But we've had a racial divide. We've had sexual orientation orientation divide, and that's a problem. But we've seen a father just trying to sell cigarettes to put food on the plate for his children. To, we've been trying, see what we're not dealing with is the trauma that it is actually engaged in us now from seeing this to actually see someone lose their life like it's a movie on Netflix. Nothing is Netflix, but like it's a movie, but it's real life and it's real life that you play so that even if you're following the law, even if you're just driving a car, even if you're in a store buying a toy gun for your son, there is no security, no trust that you will not be hurt just because of something that you cannot change. So it doesn't surprise me. What surprises me at times, you know, it doesn't surprise me that white people, black people have this fear because you also have a group of people, they may have this fear, but they will, they will engage, right? So you have people like Americans, right? They're they're willing to defend their family. They're willing to defend their lives. And what we've seen though, that even in those cases, the black person, even if it's justified, and I don't say I'm not saying anything is justified personally myself, but even if it's justified, the black person, a brown person, would probably still lose in the court of law. And so they can't depend on the law, and you can't depend on journalists because behind every journalist, behind every gun, behind every law and policy, there are people. And if there are corrupt people or if they're individuals who say they're not racist, but they actually are, and they're not confronted and they're not addressed, even as journalists, journalists should have training or if not training, they should be, there should be places of power. So when you talk about inclusion, you talk, you brought about, you brought up power. Okay. So what I'm talking about, what I talk about is everybody should have power. So that means if you want to do better when it comes to covering race, okay, don't hire just one or two or three black, brown people actually put them in positions of power that they can actually change what's wrong. Because we don't, when we don't do that, we, we, so we even have black people. Let me, let me, we have black people who say the first thing they're doing, the elections are coming up. The first thing a black person will say is I'm going to be hard on violence. I'm going to be hard on the criminals and black people will say it. White people will say it. What they won't say and what they don't talk about are the, the, the issues that have made these individuals violent. They're not talking about the, unless you're talking about a white person going in and killing somebody and saying he's mentally unstable. Well, if he's mentally unstable and we have all these hate crimes and a lot of people say, well, black people kill white people too, but not at the rate of white people killing black people because of race. That is not, and they can look at the stats, but they they argue this. And at the same time, they're saying, 
oh, well, this is happening and we're just going to be hard on crime. That's what we're going to do. We're going to just, we're just going to do, but they're not actually solving the problem. You're not solving the problem when you, their, their mothers and fathers have been hurting and they have been discriminated against. So they never got a fair chance and their mothers and fathers were discriminated against and they never got a chance. And what we will find in this America, in this nation, if you look at poor people, if you just look at poor people, they have been mistreated. They have been dismissed. I don't care whether they're white, yellow, red, black, brown, gay, straight. If you are poor in this capitalistic society, that's something you have against you. Number two, if you have a race, brown, black, if you're not straight, heterosexual, all these things just kind of tack on and tack on. And that's why you have individuals who are actually in policymaking positions with power because they know what it is to be white. They know what it is to be a white construct. They may be gay, but they're not going to come out and say that. They might like black people, but they're not going to come out and say that. Because the last thing you want to do is to do anything that actually is going to make you a minority because you see how minorities have been treated in this country. And you do not want to be treated like that. Now, here's the here's a fact. You can go a hundred, add another hundred, add another hundred years on. Oh, in this country, Historically speaking, black people are not the violent ones against white people. Everything that's been done, white black people did not storm the Capitol because we know we would have been tried for treason. It's in the law. We knew we weren't going to get a fair chance, but also what do we usually do? We go in the street, we sing, we pray, we do all of this, and still people will see us as violent. Why? because we're being constructed as being violent. I'm constructed as an angry black woman, not because I have a right to be black and angry, but I'm constructed as a black angry woman because that allows me to be divided from you as a white male. You're going to, this whole media is involved with it. Journalists aren't even asking the right questions. So when they say, oh, it's a mental illness that these people killed these black people, and drove and killed them. It's a mental illness. So here's my question. Here's my question. Have we studied whether or not racism is a mental illness? Have, we're always talking about depression and sadness. And I'm thinking to myself, if black people, where I've done my studies, and I've asked white people, has anyone done anything to you, a black person? They may name one or two cases, but not historically. And it only happened to them, but not their mother and father. And it only happened to them, but not their grandparents. So I'm thinking to myself and I ask them, so why do you think that you're racist then? Why do you hate black people? Why do you hate brown people? Why, why is that? And there's no answer. There's no good answer why they actually, so here's the answer they're conditioned to. That's, that's my, that's my, my science, social scientist answer is that they have been conditioned, which means they can be reconditioned. Not to. That means white people who don't feel the same way of other white people who believe in killing black people and saying they're the most violent. That is not, historically speaking, that is not the case. White people can still walk through a town, a neighborhood, a black town and be okay. On the other hand, black people cannot. Black people cannot sit in their cars and play music too loudly. They cannot go through the neighborhood. And so what's going to happen? And here's, here's, my, here's my concern. I have black white people in my family, like most black people. 
I have that same concern, not just for my black brothers and sisters. I have that same concern for my white brothers and sisters, my Vietnamese and my Asian brothers and sisters, my pre-American indigenous people, that they, let's just talk about white people, that they will actually be seen and hurt because they are now, if we can allow this to continue, they will now be seen as a racist without ever talking to them. They will now, they won't know that one is married to my brother. One is married to my cousin. What? No, it doesn't matter because now, because white people have to speak up and white people have to say, that is not me. That is not America. We are not going to do that. And if they don't do that, then they will be judged by the company that they keep because not everybody's going to take out the time and say, oh, well, you know, that's not the case. That's been 400 years and 400 years and we're still even arguing about whether you should get paid for doing the work, whether you should get paid to building up this country with reparations. Shoot, no one wants to work for free, but black people want to. You don't want to give them that. So it's deep, Tom. It is so deep. But I think that there can be healing from this. I think that there can be more voices that come up and say, you know what? I don't want my black brother, my white brothers and sisters to be judged by the color of their skin. Martin Luther King, Dr. Martin Luther King said that. And it's not just for black people, it's for white people. We do not want to judge white people by the color of their skin because we have come this far and made it this far because of white people who did not do those things. We'll be back after this message. The Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University seeks to not only educated students about today's communication industry, but to produce innovative leaders who will shape the future of communication and its methods of delivery in a rapidly changing technological landscape. Scripps provides leadership in communication by preparing students to be effective and responsible communicators in a global society and by advancing the field through creative activity and research. The Scripps College of Communication fosters multicultural awareness within a diverse community. It strives to create a climate of civility where leadership and innovation are prized and responsibility and accountability are understood. The college values curriculum, research, and creative activity that provide benefits to people regionally, nationally, and globally. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Let me say something from a, a, a perspective of an old white male, okay? I, I'm looking at this poll, and it says... 70% majority of black Americans think at least half of white Americans hold white supremacist beliefs. 75% of black Americans say white supremacists are a major threat to black Americans. And 66% say white supremacy is a bigger problem today than it was five years ago. Now, here's my issue. I naively, I believe, used to think that I knew who white racists were. I could give you a characterization of a white racist or a white supremacist. I could give you a stereotype. I could give it to you in detail. 
Now what this is saying, this, I can't tell who's racist anymore. I can't tell which of the people I work with are racist. I can't tell which of the people I work with have white supremacist attitudes. It's so pervasive, according to this, that I can't differentiate anymore. How, how then do those people who care, and I mean really care, change this construct? I, I'm so discouraged. I am so disheartened. Yeah, you know, that that I at 73 years old, I'm sitting here and see a lifetime where I feel like we've made no progress whatsoever and instead have gone backwards. I've had and my so say. Tom Sorry. To, <laughs> no, no, no. It's it's quite all right. I I can understand the frustration and I think that that is a it's a shared frustration um given um, all of the hard work and quite frankly, the all hands on deck attitude that um, so many have had and, and so many across all spectrums have had black, white, um, rich, poor, brown. It, it matters not that that we've definitely we have a shared interest and um, value and goal. In moving this country forward, and yet, and in human yet, dignity, and, and, and in human and, dignity, and, yes. and in human respect for mm-hmm. everyone, and yet we still wonder, you know, where was this cancer? How where has this cancer been festering? Right, it's that idea that we've been working so hard, and we've been in treatment for four hundred years. It's like being in chemo for four hundred years, and you still got that one small cell tumor in there that you just can't manage to eradicate no matter how much you, you know, you try to cut it out, you treat it out, it stamp it out. It just seems to be the cancer that keeps growing and it um, somehow easily begets more sales and it continues to grow. And so um, Tom, what you've expressed by way of just, you know, disconcerting outrage is, is I think the same frustration that again, so many, so many Black and and I I love what you called um, Dr. Collins pre Americans um, have experienced, but also is this not that that statistic you named? Is that not the same warning that Director Christopher Ray told us um, approximately two years ago about the uptick yeah. in um, racism and racist behavior and what we could expect? And I think to some degree, you know, there are those of us who were shocked to hear it. Um, but there were so many who, for whom it almost just sounded like Charlie Brown's teacher was speaking because it just <laughs> did not resonate at all, as if the man had said nothing. And for those directly impacted by it, you now we weren't all that surprised but for the people who needed to hear it, the people that were in positions of power to do something about it and doing something about it isn't always taking that, you know, 36,000 foot view and, and taking the highest view. True, truly, you know, this is behavior that's homegrown at the lowest, most local levels. 
you know, these aren't aren't folks that are always sitting back plotting the next federal government takeover. What happened in Buffalo was at a neighborhood grocery store where someone drove 200 miles into a neighborhood to inflict terror and trauma and and lifelong injury, enduring injury on a, a community, on families, on people. Yes, to shock the soul of of the nation, presumably, but again, nothing that, that is all that surprising. And I, you know, I heard, I want to say it was perhaps Victor Blackwell on CNN who was choked up um, while he was speaking to his colleague and he was saying how many of these stories he had covered over the years and how this had perhaps been about a dozen or so. And that, you know, you'll have you know, those policymakers on both sides of the argument, you'll have, you know, maybe Democrats that talk about more gun control and and you'll have, you know, Republicans that talk about, you know, arming everyone. But at the end of the day, there are no real solutions. And meanwhile, you've got folks that are smack dab in the middle who aren't the policymakers. They aren't the decision makers. They don't sit at the table. They don't control the nation's checkbook. They don't even control the local checkbook. They're barely just balancing their own checkbook and they're trying to make it from day to day. And they have very little, if any, faith in these systems of government that are put there and are supposed to protect them, to serve them, to keep them safe. You have people who literally their heads are on a swivel. They're not only watching the cops who have historically mistreated people of color and poor people. But now they're watching not just the cops, but they're watching the neighbors. They're watching the random guy who pulls up next to them. They're watching the other parent that comes to pick up their kid from school. They don't know. We don't know who to trust no more than I think, Tom, you know, you know, hey, who, who, you know, nobody's going to raise their hand when you say, OK, all the racists at the convention, raise your hand. You know, it's it's not the badge of honor they want it to be, but it's certainly the thing that they'll act upon. And that's the terribly unfortunate thing that is, I think, at play right now. And it's the hard thing to kind of weed out because I think it goes directly to your question of well, where are they? Who are they? How do we respond to them? You know, racism is not genetic. It's learned behavior. It's not something that you're born to. You're not born to hate other people. You're taught to hate other people. And I, for one, know that experience up close. I know it. um, And I've experienced that type of direct racist bigotry from Democrats who are, you know, you know, right here in my own backyard. And now we've seen it from, you know, other people on the other side of the aisle that are, you know, advancing the great replacement theory. And which is kind of a stunning misnomer to me, because I think, you know, with the exception of the the pre-Americans, our Native Americans, and, you know, the the forced um, interns that Blacks became as slaves, you know, everyone that's here is an immigrant from somewhere. And so I'm not so certain what we're talking about replacing when essentially it's like the thieves are complaining that the that others might want to actually come in and take back what may rightfully belong to them or what never belonged to the thieves in the first place. 
it is absolutely pretty stunning to me, but it also goes to Dr. Collins' point of that power dynamic, the fear of losing power, or how about the outright disdain for sharing power, sharing government, entrusting others to help govern themselves. I think that's part of a a greater conversation and perhaps one for another day, but it's the fact that you know, those that have traditionally been in power are not the minorities. And there is this stunning fear of, oh my God, what happens when we do start giving them more? It's that conversation about the others and what makes them less than and unworthy and what we need to do to eradicate that or correct all of these wrongs because this country is going in the wrong direction by giving all of these rights and powers and opportunities to the others that are not inherent to them. And that's the, I think that's the abhorrent part. And that's also the part that leaves us with the least amount of opportunities to advance and to pass on to the next several generations, this supposed great country that it was supposed to be. Dr. Collins, uh, jump in. Yeah, I I just, no, she brought up some great points and I said, I'm going to save those for the next show because you're exactly on point when it's about trust, it's about learned behavior and and feelings. Um, And, um, you know, how do you get trust unless you give people a chance, right? But if you set a system up that's not going to give people a chance, then you'll never know. Um, And you don't want to take that, that, um, that chance on giving other people power and giving them the opportunity to make it a better place, but exactly about the immigrants, even with the his, history books. I mean, to me, it is, um, it's a, is it a misuse of power uh, when you want to actually change facts in history books? It, it, it doesn't do us any good and actually doesn't give any credit to our white children to that. They can learn. <laughs> They're okay. They're doing okay. But besides that, um, I want to tell you that, I've stopped using kind of um, using white supremacy for the most part in in a lot of ways because um, by I feel that and I'm not saying anything about using it for sake of conversation, but it really isn't white supremacy because they're um, by me using white supremacy is actually um, in my estimation it actually is solidifying that it, it actually exists. Um, and but it's a me, valid it's, construct for sure. Yeah. And, and, and it's a rhetoric. And, and to me, white supremacy, it actually, to be more accurate, is white racism. So white supremacy is, um, you know, I think there are, I think there's one supreme, which is God. But I also think that um, there are really wonderful people who do extraordinary things. That's how I look at that. So I don't put a, a label next to that. But um I will say also about, you know, you make a great question, raise a great, great question. If you as a white man can't tell who's racist <laughs> and your conversations and your narrative, which means sometimes even you're hanging around really great people, sometimes they'll say something a little twisted and you may say, well, you know, Tom, you may say, well, I think that's a little racist, but now you're saying it's really difficult. Well, let me tell you something about black people. Um, it can be difficult um, because we have also been conditioned and when some people call it Christianity, some people call it the way I, my mother and father raised me. Um, some of us have been raised that a lot of us, because we've been in this position that we see people 
and we judge them by the, their character, not the color of their skin, right? The content of their character. But when we lift that veil, the way that we have survived all of these centuries is because we have another sixth sense or seventh sense that even without saying something, a lot of black people can look and see, oh, that they're, they're racist. You can tell when someone's about to say something, for instance, racist, in just their body language. And we've had to do that because we've had to survive. Whether on the back roads, um, you know, heading to one farm to another, we've had to really gauge people, their spirit, their energy, their body language, the words that they use and don't use, the tonality, all of that just to save our lives, just to make sure we don't get into trouble, we don't go down the wrong road. That's still going on today, unfortunately. And I think it's okay for us to be upset about it because maybe change can happen now. I think it's time that we, you know, white people stop. They need to stop thinking. A lot of them have. They need to stop thinking just because someone puts fear and says, oh my God, you're going to be a minority. Most of the white people that I talk to and most of the surveys that I see, the ones that vote for people or have put these people in power are doing bad themselves. These people, they get, they get the power, but they're not turning around to help you. They're not actually helping you. They're helping you to become more like them. And if there's more of them to say, you know what? I don't know who you are, but you're black. You know, I've had a three-year-old tell me that he loves me. And I was working at a place in a, in a, and I, I would just watch this child as some other activities were going on because I was an administrative job. And I love this child. And this child at the end of it all, four months later, I said, well, it's so wonderful. I'm so glad we became friends. And he said, oh, we're not friends. Oh, why, why aren't we? Because you're an in. Now that's a three-year-old child. Whoa. Well, and so when these things, that's why I said children are not born racists, but what, what they're doing, and I think inevitably at the end of it, white people will be hurt by this. And because they're actually going to be codified as being violent, as being unjust, as being unfair, as you know, we have racial po profiling on one hand, but we don't have racial profiling on the other hand to say, you know what, I don't know, all of the people that did this are this race or this gender, but the only ones that kind of get racially profiled, even unjustifiably, are non-whites. So that's a form of white racism. And we have to really separate ourselves from that because there are some white people who are not racist, period. And there, but I'm not saying that they haven't been, uh, you're surrounded by billboards of, of white is wonderful. White is to be revered and black is to be feared. That's how I look at it. That's the conditioning. And so if anything is going to take away from white people being revered, there's going to be a problem. But if we want to come together as the United States of America with one flag, if we want to come together as the United States of America, then people, transformational leaders are going to have to be elected. People are going to have to speak out just like we're doing now on this podcast. And we're just going to have to speak truth. And we're going to have to let everyone know 
that you have nothing to fear, but fear itself when it comes down to it, when you do the right thing. Now, I'm not talking about over and across everything. I'm not saying that nothing bad will happen to anyone and everyone who just does the right thing. We know that is untrue. But I know that if we don't start changing the trajectory of where we're going, then we are going to see more things happening over and over and over again. And we have to understand that it is not good for white people, for black people to fear you. It is not good for black people to fear white people. It is not good, but it is real. And until those policies and those actions change, until a child can run into the arms of a person in blue, a person in white, a person in black, whatever the case may be, then we're all in trouble. And so I think journalists also, I think journalists need to do a better well, job. Well, let, let me jump in here because the last topic I wanted to bring up, and, and we we may have to do more shows on this topic, obviously, but the last topic I wanted to bring up today is the role of journalism. Uh, obviously, uh, people have had Tucker Carlson at Fox News under a microscope for uh, using replacement theory as, as the main focus of his programming over over the last uh, few years uh, and just sort of both blatantly and as dog whistles uh, stirring that pot. Uh, we've got journalists who uh, still look at the mental health side of things instead of the race side of things. Uh, we've got social media you know, I know we're all First Amendment advocates. Uh, Judge Gale is. I know you, uh, Dr. Collins, you are uh, from your journalism days and other means. Where are we journalistically on this? I, I um, quite frankly, I think that um, nowadays everyone has the ability to be um, a journalist in their own right, right? Given, you know, Facebook and, and Twitter and Snapchat and Instagram, um, we have the ability to write stories and to to air our positions relative to these um, these situations. And I, but I do believe at the same time, just like the average Joe can be a journalist, I think that those who command audiences and have the ability to um, bring millions of viewers to um, to their side, have a responsibility to do so um, responsibly. And you can't, so what I like about this is that it's so funny I, when you mentioned um, some journalists at, on a certain network What's interesting is that they want all the praise when it's working well, but when it backfires, it's hands off or that's not really me or there's no way to connect that behavior to the things that I've said when, in fact, there there's clear nexus between the two, um, I, although I'm, I'm not directly um, blaming anyone. I am saying that there is certainly a nexus between the rhetoric. It creates um, an environment it, it, yes, it, that, it, that breeds uh, these kinds of things. And it creates a dangerous echo chamber for individuals to, to just sort of fester in. Um, and these are the things that journalists must own. 
If you own the good, you must own the bad. If you are now aware, I mean, if, for example, you know, if as a function of our podcast, you know, there are individuals who take what we say and, and, and we, you know, had a, an audience and a following that's so massive that they sort of take what we say as almost gospel and they act upon it. And it's, yeah, you're right. And, and you know, we should do you know, X, Y, and Z, the fact of the matter is, is there has to be a level and a degree of ownership for um, statements that are made, even under the banner of the First Amendment. Um, And and quite frankly, I do believe, and I agree with Dr. Collins, I don't know that journalists are always asking the right questions. I think that what I see is an unfortunate pattern is particularly when offenders are not minorities. There's the faithful standby of what mental health issues or, or challenges did they did they suffer from? What were they struggling with? When they are minorities, however, there seems to be less and less interest in whether or not they had any mental health challenges, what their circumstances were, whether or not there were root cause issues, what their societal um, situation was. And none of that seems to matter. It was a violent black man, just pure and simple. That's the conclusion that's Yes. And almost to the point where there's the, you know, natural, you know, insistence that that's just the genetic makeup of, of black and brown people is that they are just genetically violent and that they are barbaric. There's no expectation that they will act as civilized human beings. And so there's no justification for their behavior in this circumstance, except for the fact that they're just preconditioned and and, and we already expect that they will act and respond violently. So guess what? This behavior was true to form. However, if they are not, um, then, you know, and, and what's stunning is and I think Dr. Collins, you said something that actually I had to chuckle earlier because you said had, you know, had perhaps those participating in, um, you know, the January 6th event been mm-hmm. predominantly black or people of color, they would be tried for treason. That assumes they would be alive because I'm of the mind that more likely than not, there would have been very little effort to escort them down the front steps of the Capitol. There would have been few, if any, efforts to merely arrest. I think there might have been snipers. There may have been full tanks pulled out. We may have seen a bloodbath on the steps of our nation's capital like never seen before. That's, and I think that's unfortunate, but I think that that's also what perhaps the expectation has become um, when we think about these two systems of of justice in America, there's one, certainly one that's different from the other. And while we're at it and we're talking about the differences in these systems and, and how you have certain lawmakers who now, in retrospect, merely refer to that fateful day in January as, oh, just another day at the Capitol where folks are, you know, just doing peaceful tours of the Capitol, um, that perhaps... I can't imagine those ever being the words used to describe such an event if, in fact, the predominant number of participants were minorities. It would have there been would a have, race riot from, from the get-go. 
Oh my God. In a bloodbath. Yeah. And a bloodbath. Imagine if they had been, you know, Hispanics or my goodness, if they had been undocumented, it would have been, you know, all kinds of justification for exactly why the measures taken, whatever those were, would have been justified, necessary, needed, and and perhaps even more. And that's why when we talk about the the language of journalists and and how journalists are approaching this is so necessary because the public ingests what's happening through the lens of journalists. Journalism provides us the eyes and the ears to be able to see what's happening. And they narrate these experiences for us, often from, yes, a skewed perspective, but a perspective nonetheless. But that's also a perspective they must take responsibility for. And to the extent that you've got, again, one certain person in particular on a network who to this very day, I'm not sure why they only spell their name with one K and not three, um, does not fully take responsibility for the language they've espoused or the the visceral racist rhetoric they've espoused, understanding that, yes, these are outcomes that can be expected, is, is, is not shocking. Um, and actually, to some degree, is kind of expected. But it is also the... Um, it's the exact reason why journalists should be held to uh, a higher standard. And I believe that just as lawyers are held to high standards, journalists should be as well. Dr. Collins, uh, I, you are many things, but I always consider you a journalist first. Absolutely. So uh, I'm going to give you last word on this. Okay. And I'll make it quick. Thank you so much. Uh, that, that was really great. I was really enthralled to listening to me, to you guys. Um, it is, you know, and, and, and just to your last point, um, Judge Gale, um, that they should be held to a higher standard and they should have accountability and responsibility. The problem is, is that the ones who could actually do something about it, the ones that can actually hold them accountable and responsible are saying the same things. Okay. And so, you know, the ones that are in power, they can say, you know, well, this was really wrong what you did. And this is not what we do as a journalist. And we have to understand everyone who poses as a journalist is not a journalist. We have to first be clear about that, that individuals who on, on any set who, you know, um, there is citizen journalism and I think they do a great job, but you know, there are other journalists and trained journalists and experienced journalists who apply the code of ethics, you know, in journalism, there really wasn't uh, opinions unless it was editorials. Uh, and we've seen that that has changed, but let me see, let me tell you what actually I, I discovered in 2004, what you're, lock, what you're talking about that we see with journalists covering certain stories and not asking certain questions, what we see with individuals in blue with power uh, where you have massacred people in a church and they take you to get something to eat. What we're actually seeing is a schematic perspective. And what that means is, is that I see myself in you. I see my son. I see my daughter. I see my father. And so I see myself. So therefore I'm going to treat you differently. Okay. They do not. So they do not see that if I see a, a black child. That's the problem. Instead of just seeing Americans, okay, we're past that. It's a racial divide. And so what happens is they will say, well, mm, he was mentally, and this happens to journalists. They don't ask the right questions because they cannot be impartial. 
Some of them cannot be impartial. Some of them cannot be objective. Some of them have to say, well, he had a mental disorder because they don't even want to see it in themselves. You know, you know, it's a hard thing. I wanted to tell people, you know, it's not just black people who are conditioned because of the enslavement that occurred here. There were white people that were conditioned as well. And what active centralized empowerment says that you do not have to abide by that. What you can say is, I can see your race, I can see your color, I can see that, but I also see American. I also see a human being. And that's what I'm going to go by. That's what active centralized empowerment does. That's why when I talk about it in my um, 250 years and still a slave, I say everybody has the opportunity to do better. Everyone has the opportunity to know that we're all conditioned. So if they've been conditioned to see a white man has been conditioned to see a white male, young male, as himself, and a black male as the polar opposite. Then you can understand how when I put a cover of a of a um, of a a magazine, uh, one a Life magazine, and I I spread it out and I have everyone look at the same exact picture of an individual with camouflage on, with a helmet and a rifle, looking down the focus there, looking down the scope. Overwhelmingly, the white students saw a hero, a protector. The black students saw a perpetrator. Their lives were in danger. They saw it totally different in this particular um, study that I did. And so what it taught me is that we see things differently. We've been conditioned to see things differently. And as far as I'm concerned with this race replacement theory, and you're talking about media literacy, you have to, we have to understand that a lot, of the, a lot of our audiences are not media literate. They're not going to do a lot of uh, you know, investigation and research on, oh, well, did what he say, is that right? Is that correct? Is that accurate? Is that truth? Is it following the code of ethics? That's why journalists have to do it first. We, when we lose trust in journalists, we have lost the fourth estate. We're in trouble. And when we talk about replacement theory, what I hear, when I hear replacement theory, I hear insecurity. What I hear is fear. Because we have to understand that the replacement theory, just like every other atrocity against any other pre-American, indigenous, brown, black, Jew, has come from fear. So that fear is really the culprit. The fear that we have is residual. That's what's left over after all of the atrocities have happened. And I want to say lastly, is that the media messengers, whether they're on social media and they're called influencers now, whether they're on uh, any network, legacy network, news network, anything along those lines, what we're seeing is that we're seeing media messengers who are just human people, human beings, who actually want to be popular by being bullies. They want to be popular no matter what the circumstances, no matter what all we have to lose. They have been conditioned to compete and be a winner. And how is that defined? To be admired, to be loved, because at the human level, everyone wants to belong. The first thing you learn is social sociology and psychology. Everyone, everyone wants to belong to something or someone. And if you can't fit in and you find that you fit in another way, even if it means berating someone, even if it means bullying someone, 
Because we are weak when it comes to our character at times, human beings will do terrible things just to be popular. And that is on a human level, everything we've talked about today, on a human level, the problem and solution. While we have judges and everyone that will help, we need to have judges that will help and make policies and laws and lawmakers. We have to have journalists. And, and you know, we don't need brown, black journalists to go in and take these jobs and then just be conditioned to do the same. You're not helping the situation. When truth doesn't matter, we're in trouble like we are now. So I just want to say that I applaud and appreciate you, Tom, for having a podcast and having the courage to put this show on and say, I just want to speak the truth. And I want to have people on here who are willing to say, this is what, how we see it. This is what's going on. I want to thank Judge Gale for coming in and saying, you know what? I'm looking at it from a legal standpoint. I'm not trying to close your show, Tom. It sounds like I'm just about to close your show. It's quite all right. Keep on going. (laughs) You know, looking at it from the legal system and then looking at it from uh, my perspective as a journalist, my perspective as a humanitarian, or what I call myself a human conglomerate who is a humanitarian, of the technician who came in and said, you know what? If no one else is going to do it, we're going to have to find a way to get through this. And we're not going to do it by yelling and screaming at people. We're going to do it by saying, you know what? We can change it. We can change the trajectory of this great nation. And we can, by doing this, we will set the precedent of what it is to have diversity, equity, inclusion with power, not just inclusion and tokenism, inclusion with power and belonging, because that's what everybody wants. We just have to do it the right way. And so, you know. With that, thank you, Dr. Collins and Judge Gale, as Always, you're my stalwart. Uh, I appreciate your comments so much. And and you know, we, you and I started having these tough conversations. Uh, what about two years ago? Right after Indeed. George Floyd, Indeed. and and, and, and the we probably is, thought we were near the end then, but we yeah. are still in the throes of it. Still in the throes. Thank you so much, both of you, for your your time and your expertise. Uh, I appreciate you both. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much, Tom. Thank you, Dr. Collins. Thank you, Judge Gill. Today, we've been talking to Dr. Janice Collins and Judge Gail Williams-Byers about the rise of racism in America and the impact it's having on our Black citizens. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or at NPR One. And Spectrum also is available through the NPR Podcast Directory. We always welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it through any of your favorite podcast outlets. If you have questions or comments about our podcast or have suggested topics for us to cover, please direct them to me by email. You can do that at hodson at ohio.edu. That's hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu.